2024 is for the short bald kings with a so-so credit score. The Sock Jake Sneaker Podcast is facing these kind of things with a sense of poise and rationality. Welcome to episode 63 of the Sock Jake Sneaker Podcast. I am your host, Sock Jake. You can follow me on Twitter at Sock Jake and on Instagram as well. So after a bit of a break, after a slow January, I'm back. Uh, you know, January is often a time where people make these New Year's resolutions and grand proclamations about their sneaker collection. I'm going to retire this year. I'm going to sell off a whole bunch of pairs. All I'm going to say about that is make some realistic goals. Don't be like, I'm going to retire, I'm going to buy one, and then I have to sell one if I buy one. Uh, It's like the Dave Chappelle bit. Come on, buddy. Come on, buddy. Be realistic here. And anyone who says they're going to reduce or get out of sneakers, I'm always like, what are you going to wear, loafers now? You're going to go to Kmart, pay less shoes, Ross, dress for less? That's where you're shopping now for sneakers? So come on, buddy. Or maybe the whole point is to make unrealistic expectations, and then you could easily abandon them. In terms of the rundown for this episode, I wanted to talk about some predictions for 2024, some bold predictions. I need your audience participation in it, so I'll talk about that in a little bit. I have some shorter topics. I'm going to talk about the Project Blitz warehouse being raided, the Stanley Cups craze, the Kith loyalty program, Nike, and Tiger Woods. Then later, I have some more thoughts about complex parent BuzzFeed being broke. And uh, yeah, of course, I'm going to dunk on them again. But it it, it was more spurred on by recent media news and layoffs that have been happening with Pitchfork and Sports Illustrated and others. And so I, I have some general thoughts on content creation as an independent content creator myself and the state of criticism with these outlets and with content creators and the direction it's going. So I talked briefly about year-end lists, and I didn't want to go over my sneaker bracket and all the results and upsets and things like that, but I have some general thoughts on what it takes to make that list, and I also talk about my worst of list that I make every year, talk about behind the scenes on that, how I make the list, what didn't make the cut, what I forgot, things like that. I also cover my personal year in sneakers, my favorite pickups, the regrets that I have, what I paid resale on, what I sold off. Uh, my most worn sneakers, just an overview. And as a warning, as a heads up, sometimes in a lot of these segments, I ended up talking a lot about content creation and content about content is not something I want to do regularly going forward. So I got it out of my system here. So there's parts where if you skip it, if it's not for you, that's totally fine. The the timestamps are in the description. You can jump around if you like. On feet lately, it was raining a lot and it was snowing before, so I was wearing Salomon XT6, the Gore-Tex ones, in the rain. And then when it snowed a couple days here, I was wearing these Hoka Kaha 2 Gore-Tex ones as well too. Not exactly a winter boot, but a hiking boot good enough for a little bit of snow. In terms of pickups, I picked up a few at the end of last year. I think I forgot to mention them in my previous one. I picked up the Joe Fresh Goods intro pair, the 990V4, the, the white black pair. I didn't get the black one. Also picked up Sockney Pro Grid 9 Crystal Cave. And there was a local place that had them on sale and in my size. So it's a very nice shoe in hand. It looks like those underground crystal caves. And as different light hits it, it has a different unique look. 
my only other pickup this year has been the Kith Clark Samba. I think in the last episode I said I missed it. And then a friend reached out to me and said, hey, I have your size. And so I was able to pick them up from them. So uh, technically that was a last year release. So really I have not picked up any 2024 releases. Uh, in terms of skips, I did skip out on those Salehi ones, the ones that look like Vision from the Avengers uh, and the other one as well too. I don't know. I'm just not sold on this 1906R model yet. Like I've said before, it looks like a hubcap or steering wheel, but it seems like they're going to push it a lot this year. So, you know, maybe I'm open to change my mind on it. And everything else, as I mentioned, January is a nice break. I've been skipping out on buying a lot of sales sneakers. I, I see the sales, I think about it, and then I just abandon it. So it's good to have a little bit of discipline. And, you know, later on in the year, I might not have that much discipline. So for 2024, I wanted to make some bold predictions, but then I also want your predictions. I want you to send me your bold predictions in terms of sneakers for 2024. Uh, you can leave a voice message, which I'll have a link in the description. You can email me, sockjig at gmail.com. You can reply to me on Twitter. The condition is it's got to be bold. So it can't be obvious and it can't be too general. Like local resale shops are going to close is too general. Whereas if you say something like StockX is going to close down this year, that is a bold prediction. So this time next year, we'll read through the predictions that we made and then I'll pick the best one and I'll give them a pair of socks or something. So there are several predictions I've made on this podcast. I do a lot of future casting. I've talked about retail store closures and the future of retail mostly online. I think I said there could be a lot of Saudi investment into luxury fashion world, into the big conglomerates, but I haven't seen exactly that. Or even the bust of sneaker theft rings and early pair sellers and stuff like that I've predicted. I also said that, you know, there could be AI in the future writing a lot of this generic content. And I totally see this happening in sneaker media. You know, it doesn't take that much to get an AI to load in the KTLA Project Blitz story and then write out a generic version of it. Another one I've said on Twitter is that Travis SB will not restock. I still stand by that. I don't think there'll be a Travis SB in 2024. So this was just me trying to take some of these kind of things and just formalize them a bit here. So I'm making some bold predictions myself for my own contest. But from you, I only want one. Please keep it concise and only one and then we'll pick the best one. So in terms of my bold predictions, I don't think there'll be a Jordan 4 SB in 2024. I haven't seen any hints of it, so I'm just going to formally say no Jordan 4 SB will release in 2024. My other bold prediction is that Nike and Rick Owens will announce a release or collab. Rick Owens does some work with Converse, which is sort of related. My other bold prediction is that TikTok will clean up fakes on its platform so that they can become authorized sellers for retail sneakers. So this would allow places like Nike or Adidas to have official relationship with TikTok instead of how it is right now where fakes are running rampant there. But it's a long shot, but it's something that's definitely plausible. So from you, what are your bold predictions? What do you think that's going to happen in 2024? I'll give you some general areas to think about. Like you can say what you think will be the sneaker of the year or what will be the GR sneaker of the year, what will replace the Samba or Air Force One or Dunk, but... That's a little general. In terms of brands, what's going to happen at Nike, Nike Basketball, Nike SB, Adidas, what's going to happen with Yeezys, Jerry Lorenzo. Collaborators, are we going to see any new collaborations? Like I, like I predicted, maybe we'll see uh, Rick Owens and Nike. 
what about existing collaborators? What are they going to do? What's Union going to do? What's Amum and you're going to do? What's James Whitner? What's is he going to go to jail this year? That's could be a bold prediction. Cactus Plant, Flea Market, Travis, Tom Sachs. Will we see a Tom Sachs in 2024? That could be a bold prediction. Lawsuits, sometimes these lawsuits are, you know, it's either it's going to win or close or whatever. What's going to happen with Bape, StockX, uh, The Cool Key, James Whitner, Zeta Kicks? Uh, maybe you can make a prediction along those lines. Maybe retail, who's going to expand, who's going to shut down, what's going to happen to the big box retailers like Foot Locker or Dick Sporting Goods. Resell as well, too. What's going to happen to the apps? What's going to happen to resale in general? So that's just some general ideas where you can make a bold prediction. But like I said, make it bold. Nothing that will get me sued, please. Uh, nothing horrible. Some people will die or anything like that. Nothing like that. So make a bold prediction. Send it in. I'll read them out in a future episode. And then this time next year, we'll reread them again and see who was the closest one and who was accurate and who was way off and what happens with these predictions is sometimes they are never close and there's kind of not meant to be because sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction so send me your bold prediction make it one prediction put your name on it your platform your site if you have one anything you want to plug you know if you're a content creator and you want to kind of showcase yourself here's your chance i'm giving you my platform use my platform make a bold prediction plug yourself or even if you're just a regular person, you can leave a voice message. That'd be preferred because it's an audio podcast. That would work out great. The link is in the description. Or you can send me an email if you want to write it out. Email is sockjig at gmail.com. Maybe you can do a voice recording on your phone and email me that way if that's more convenient. Or you can reply to me on Twitter and I will collect them all, bookmark them all, and then read out the best ones in a future episode. And if your bold prediction is the closest one, we'll select some finalists next year and we'll vote on who is the best one and the winner will get socks or something. Maybe you can be on the show and we can talk about your bold prediction. So send it in. Audience participation. Be a part of the show. Thank you. There was news this week that $5 million worth of Nike product was recovered in allegedly Project Blitz's warehouse. Project Blitz is a well-known outlet in California, LA area. They're well-known for having a lot of grails. They're run by Croatian-style Dre and others probably, I'm not sure. And in this case, there was an arrest made, but it wasn't Dre. It was someone called Roy Lee Harvey Jr., which is quite the name Lee Harvey Jr. Um, so all of this, I'm not sure exactly of what Project Blitz's involvement was, if the inventory recovered was theirs, or if they were subletting space to someone, or if this person is an employee of there, or maybe they are involved. I, I don't know. But something, when I read through it and I saw the photos on the KTLA news site, something seemed off or incomplete. Like, we don't have the full picture here. Because the photos they were showing didn't look like the typical stolen merchandise there was like cpfm grass shoes and things like that and usually stolen merchandise from what we've seen in previous cases are usually like future releases or sbs and things like that i know project blitz is on the network app on their selling items bricks or clothing i'm not sure and i know they've also supplied goat with a lot of their supreme items that goat sells on there so like i said they're just a well-known outlet that 
is known for being able to get items and the nudge nudge wink wink being that they can get it back to her. So for now it's unclear, but $5 million in merchandise is a lot. So I'm not sure exactly what they covered. If that kind of detail was out there, we would have more of an idea, but there's a lot going on in this world. There's fake clothing like spider and denim tears and all that kind of stuff is widespread at consignment stores and possible fakes of those being authenticated at GOAT and StockX and things like that. There's crime rings doing cargo heists. So the network of all this is pretty extensive and not just like one or two bad apples. And I covered this in the previous episode, episode 57, where I talked about stolen and fake and backdoor sneakers and how they kind of blur the lines and the sellers that have them want them to appear like they have backdoored sneakers but they could possibly be stolen sneakers that episode is going to age well because in that episode i basically implied that sooner or later the feds will do a sweep that there's a lot of things going on that eventually cops will get on and maybe they've been doing this the whole time and this is the type of stories we see once in a while kind of dribble out so things are changing in sneakers as i said when things are not reselling like they used to and the money's not there and maybe payments can't be made and maybe someone's now going and telling the police what's happening so they don't get charged. A lot of that could possibly be happening. I, I'm not sure. I'm total outsider here just looking into a crime network and assuming that from TV shows that I've watched like uh, The Wire and Oz and stuff like that. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more of these kind of stories and we'll get a more complete picture sooner or later. Real quick, I want to talk about this whole Stanley Cups hype thing that has been going around. And I'm sure you've seen it by now where there's this Target exclusive of these Stanley Quencher Cups or whatever they're called. And they're on StockX now. And you've been seeing the post trending and kind of hit a fever pitch where there's posts of women showing they have one for every outfit. They have cute accessories. I even saw one where it's just a whole collection of them on the wall as you would as if it was a sneaker display. And as I tweeted, I did mention this whole Stanley Cup uh, hype thing. Back in late 2022, I wrote a tweet about it. And even then, I had waited till the Wall Street Journal wrote about it because they were flipping that whole year, that whole from January on whenever it started to September or so when I wrote that tweet. You know, I personally don't sell on eBay, but I have friends who were aware of it and who were doing it. And they made a lot of money selling it that early on so this has been going on for quite a while and before i continue it really is kind of hurts as a canadian to see the word stanley cup taken over because to any canadian any nhl fan that only means one thing the sacred stanley cup and now it's an accessory on someone's outfit or whatever it is but the funniest thing to me was sneakerheads specifically saying i don't get it and it's like What's not to get? This is no different than hype sneakers or hype clothing. It's just hype by another name. So there was hilarious seeing people say things like, why would you need more than one? You know, someone who's got 40 Air Jordan 1s is saying, why would anyone need more than one cup? Like, do you hear yourself? This is exactly what normal people think about sneaker collectors. Why would you need more than one sneaker? Just once that one is done, you buy a new one. That's it. Or... Why would someone pay $200 for a cup on eBay? Again, people probably think you're crazy trying to buy $400 sneakers on eBay. So who cares if Karen needs that $200 cup on eBay? Because she needs that one, the one that she doesn't have. 
no different than any of the hype stuff that we deal with. And my tweet about this was, I said, you know, I own so many stupid Supreme accessories, I can't say shit. <laughs> and it's so true. And really, you could do this whole Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck type jokes with this. Like, if you have sneaker art on the wall, then you can't say shit about Stanley Cups. If your iPhone wallpaper is of sneakers instead of your kids, then you can't say shit about Stanley Cups. If you've taken a photo of another man's sneakers pointing at a puddle, you can't say shit about Stanley Cups. If you have a sneaker podcast and have a whole hour dedicated to only talking about footwear, then you can't say shit about Stanley Cups. The main thing that's really interesting about this is that this hype market that they focused on is you know, white women target shoppers. It's not the usual hype or collector type of personality. You know, people who collect comic books and cards and collectibles and Funko Pops, they all tend to be the same kind of nerdy collector. You know, traditionally more male-oriented, but obviously there's women in all those categories as well too. But they're all the same. They're just like some sort of nerdy collector. Where this is totally different than nerds. This is Christian girl autumn target shoppers, like those type of people. The nerdy collector and the Christian girl autumn target shopper don't have much in common as far as it appears, but I guess they do. So I don't know how it happened. I don't know how hype was able to jump over from the nerdy collector to target shoppers, but honestly, I think it's cute as hell. It doesn't bother me at all. Welcome, target shopper lady. You're now one of us. I don't know how long this will last. It's already been around for over two years, and it's only now gotten to the point where it was trending and on StockX, but how long it will last will depend on that Stanley company, and all it takes is one executive there saying, we need to make a lot more money and sell a lot more of these cups, and the cups are everywhere, and I don't want it anymore. So, so far, they seem to be managing it okay, I guess. They have the GR versions, and they have the hype versions, and the hype ones have a limited stock, but... I don't know. If StockX and every reseller is now on this kind of stuff, and if there's literally, you know, $5 profit to be made, then those guys will swoop in and it'll probably brick. Next up, I want to talk about this Kith loyalty program that they've formally introduced. It has multiple tiers based on how much you spend. And how they had it before was kind of a semi-informal one. Like if you had bought ASICs sneakers from them before, you would get access to the new ASICs and the same with New Balance and stuff too. And then they shifted to an app which links your online purchases with your in-store purchases. You know, in-store you would show a QR code from the app or give an email and such. And so this is a way to kind of link the two. And I had mentioned this in my future a sneaker retail episode that if you haven't listened to, please go check out. I said uh, a lot of things in there, and I think that episode will age really well. I had said that stores need to create more loyalty programs and a way to link these online in-store purchases. And the best way to do that is with an app. And the perfect example of this is McDonald's, which has built a really good system. And you see people online flexing screenshots of how many points they have. Like, that's a sign there that you built a good system, that people love it, people enjoy it, and like sharing and talking about it. So, Kith had this as well, too, but it was kind of a once in a while you get access to things. And not like a full build-out, but that's what they're doing now. They built the full-on expansion of it, and they're 
adding a lot of details like tier exclusive items and pre-orders and things like that. And any tiered loyalty system like based on spend it just means VIP. So you don't want to say VIP, you want to say loyalty and the tiers kind of say it for you. And the Essence program, they have a VIP program or personal shopper program as it's formally called and they've had it for a long time. And it's been informal behind the scenes, but they really did roll it out and have it on their website now. And you can see how much you spend and how many points you have and what tier you're in. And the one difference that they have there is you get access to a personal shopper who's your kind of VIP rep, and you can text that person and stuff. It's a really good system if you spend a lot of money, if you are loyal to Essence. And if you're loyal to Kith, then this is going to be a great program for you. If you're not, you know, it's easy to nitpick details. You can say pre-orders suck, I don't like pre-orders, or that this is just for the rich. And, you know, obviously, yes, you can say all that kind of stuff. You know, Kmart is down the block if you don't want access to Kith. The answer to all that is like, no one is forcing you to use this. You don't have to like it. It's not for those people anyways. And those are the people you see on Twitter arguing about Kith and stuff. Like a lot of that stuff, I don't care. Uh, you know, it's Kith is for people who graduated from Supreme or from Banana Republic a long time ago, or, you know, the streetwear version of luxury is lame. Those are all fine criticisms to have. You know, I myself have made some of those criticisms in the past, but loyalty programs are not made for those people. It's literally in the name that it's for the most loyal customers. So what I'm more interested in is like the fact that they even have this program and have a VIP program and Others have done it too, like Premier, they have a, a pretty good basic version, bronze, silver, gold, and your spend level resets every year. And they have some specifics too, like if you win a Nike SB raffle, it doesn't exactly count to your reward level. But if you are a VIP and spend a lot, you are more likely to win those raffles, it seems. And that's why when I saw the people arguing about the nitpicky details, I was like, you're kind of not seeing the, the forest for the trees of what's happening here. And the bigger picture is that Kith even offering this is just a huge step that other sneaker retailers are not doing and should be doing. Ronnie saying we need a loyalty program and then working on it and the details that works for them for a long time says a lot about them. Just like how Premier has built one that works for them and people like it as well too. And, you know, Kith can do this because Ronnie is Ronnie. He has built this private label clothing that he can put into the tier system. And, of course, he has the clout at the sneaker brands themselves to ask for pre-orders on a Kith Clark's Samba Gazelle or whatever and make it a pre-order. But Kith is, is different because they have multiple locations and they have a large online presence as well, too. And they wanted a system that connects these all together. And there are other competitors that are very similar, like Undefeated or Livestock, Stores that have multiple locations and an online presence. So these stores have been around for decades. And I'm sure one time in those decades, they've thought about building a loyalty system or program or VIP program and either have one informally or just dismissed it outright for whatever reason. So I tried to think of what could be the possible reasons. And this is kind of the, the short list that I came up with. First one is that it's not built out of the box from Shopify, that it's not part of the platform. It's therefore a pain to implement. And that's one of the things I talked about in my future sneaker retail episode that Shopify could bake this into the platform, but they definitely do have it available as an add-on app that you can purchase on their ecosystem. 
And when the former CEO, JM Wind, Jean-Michel Lemieux was on this podcast, we talked about this kind of stuff and what do you put in the platform and what do you not? So something like that has to be a thing for most retailers for them to want to implement it. And my stance is that basically going forward that this kind of thing should be the way most retailers go. So it should be some future casting there that then we should then build it into the system. But for now, it's probably doesn't hit that threshold mark. So they haven't done it. So for Premiere, I don't know if they just bought one of these off the ecosystem and use that. Maybe they use some Shopify scripts available for the plus member tiers, whatever it is. But the other one is building an app is expensive. And this is a good reason. Like if you want to build a custom app, it is probably going to cost you money. But even that Shopify has basically a skin that there's lots of stores that have an app that's just really a skin for their Shopify site. So another reason is that the in-store sales system is different than the online one. It's two different systems, too much of a pain to kind of uh, combine them and join them together. So another one is you don't have a private label. You don't have your own product line, your own clothing that you can sell and push on here like Kit does. And Premier has this and stores like Undefeated have this and even Livestock has a version of this. But, and this is one of the things that was in my future of sneaker retail that all these stores need to start doing this right away because your profit margins on those items is way higher. Another possible one is brands like Nike or Adidas could say, hey, don't, you know, gatekeep our, our product for specific tiers, but I'm not sure this happens anyways. Essence does this. If they got some, you know, off-white Nikes and they only got a dozen of them, they would go to the highest tier, most likely. And then the last reason I came up with is that they just don't want to do this. They just don't like loyalty programs. And this is probably the best reason there is. If you don't like it, you don't want to do it. I could see why it'd be a hassle to manage. There'd be a lot of extra overhead and things like that. But if you have a loyalty program, it implies that you care. It implies you're going to give good customer service. And it's very possible that some stores do not want to raise the bar on this. Either they're not willing or they're not in a position to or don't want to. So that's the main point here, that the fact that Kith is doing this, you know, is raising the bar for them. It's implying that they're going to give you good customer service, that they care about you. And they have to deliver on that. They have to give you perks that, you know, are good enough for the tiers that you're at. Otherwise, people are not going to want to spend to get to that next tier level or whatever it is. Then that's where the execution matters too. Like if the pre-order says it's going to take four months, it better take four months. Otherwise, you have to be really good at communicating all that kind of stuff because delays are inevitable and most likely will happen. And just to recap the kind of the points that I had made in my future of sneaker retail podcast about what brands need to do in the future. I said they need to build loyalty programs. They need to start creating their private label. They need to take a more modern approach to marketing instead of the, the old school way. You know, another thing that I said is they need to create a lot of brand theater. They have to tell the story of their brand and kind of, you know, the pomp and circumstance and song and dance kind of routine. And this qualifies for that, a VIP program with tiers and colors and things like that and pre-orders. It's part of the brand theater. And Kith is in a position to do this because they have all that. They have the private label. They have modern marketing. They do the brand theater really well. And adding this kind of program with perks and tiers implies that you're going to have good customer service and it's going to raise the bar on good customer service. And 
taking the time to spend money on things like that is a good value add for your brand and for your store rather than other stores and other retailers who have just kind of dismissed it outright or don't want to do it. Nike and Tiger Woods announced that they're parting ways. And if you think about it, you can probably come up with several reasons of why this would happen. That Tiger's older, he's not the same player, he's injured. There's newer, younger players that Nike can sign. Not to mention that Nike is seemingly pulling out of golf or golf equipment. And really, Nike has never been good at sports equipment other than footwear. They haven't been good at tech things either tech products like tech watches and things like that. They usually end up pulling those products anyways. Whatever it is, they parted ways, they made an announcement, and early on there were rumors that Tiger Woods was going to sign to On Footwear, and the On CEO shot that down at some conference that he was at, and I found it odd that he shot that down immediately. You'd think he'd play along with a bit a little bit, at least put over his own company, you know, say something like, hey, we here at On have partnered with the best of the best, like Roger Federer, and are open to partner with any elite athletes. You know, a generic statement like that makes it sound like, yeah, Tiger Woods could be here. Anyone who's elite could be here. Instead, he just said, nope, we're not signing him. I thought it was just odd, a missed opportunity, if you will. And really, I thought it was a tell that he probably already knew that Tiger was off the market, that someone else was in the middle of signing him. And that's why he played it like how he did. And now there's rumors that he's signing with TaylorMade because there's some trademark applications. And he already has a deal with TaylorMade for his clubs. So it makes sense for him to have a full-on apparel deal with TaylorMade. And my question was, is it going to be footwear too? Because TaylorMade used to be part of Adidas and sold off, but they haven't been really making shoes of their own. They've made a couple here and there and collabed with other partners. So it'll be interesting to see if they partner with someone to make those because I don't think they're going to have their own factories and lasts and all that kind of stuff that the expensive costs that come with building footwear. But if you look back at what Tiger Woods had actually been wearing the last few years, he wasn't wearing Nikes. He was wearing another golf brand called FootJoy since he came back from surgery. And he said something like he could only walk 18 holes of golf with FootJoys because they give him the stability that he needs. And, you know, even that was probably the first sign that Nike and Tiger Woods are going to part ways. And I also thought that was very interesting that Nike the worldwide leader in footwear, the one whose CEO said the word innovation a million times to investors, couldn't innovate fast enough to make a shoe for the world's greatest golfer, one-time world's greatest golfer. They couldn't come up with anything that worked for his feet with a little swoosh on it. He had to go to a totally different company. I'm sure they tried. I'm sure they had some prototypes or whatever, and They just were not as good as FootJoy. And when you're the worldwide leader in footwear and you can't come up with something, it's very telling. Or they were probably like, eh, we're not resigning him anyways. He's older. He's getting a little long in the tooth. Or we're exiting golf anyways. So why would we spend all this money making a prototype when we're going to shut down this golf factory anyways? So that is why I bring this up. That's why I'm talking about golf, not a a topic I bring up very often. And this is something I've said before, that Nike is the big dog. The big dog should act like the big dog. And I said this before with my episode with Lois, and it just happens that it matches up with the Tiger Woods big dog meme and everything. But ideally, 
When you're the market leader and you got the most cash and you have this huge lead, you should be able to sign all the legends to legends deals. You should have all the top guys, the MVP of the NBA instead of letting him walk. You can innovate on product. Tiger Woods needs a shoe with stability. Get him some shoes with stability right now. You're the big spender. You're the big leader. You're the big dog. There should not be a budget for this kind of stuff. Like I said, ideally. But in the real world, there's always a budget. Wall Street is counting their quarters. Their CEO is not a shoe dog. He's a Wall Street guy. So they're thinking with dollars and cents and quarters and not with the shoe dog mentality. And they're letting legends like Federer and Tiger walk. But when you have a Wall Street type CEO, they're going to favor the prestige sports, which he has been doing, favoring tennis and golf and running. And running is like their prime thing that they're known for and they're founded on and it's supposed to be their bread and butter. And there's some recent talk that they need to do a renewed emphasis on this. But really, it's not the prestige sports that is their real expertise. Their expertise is in basketball, inline GR models that's on the footlocker wall retros and even hype they have this huge lead in all those categories that's their real identity they should be taking that identity and flexing it on everyone as the big dog they shouldn't be trying to chase the samba with these field generals like what is this field general it's a shoe that no one remembers and is now being forced on everyone but as i said they can afford to be sloppy and kind of fall behind in aspects of footwear and cut corners because they know they have this insurmountable lead over competitors when it comes to consumer mindset consumers just love nike it's their default brand it's the one that's made the product of their youth and still makes really good product and nike knows this and they rely on this and that's why they're like what are you going to do you're going to wear a new balance you're going to wear some scoot henderson pumas on the court no. So I'm not an expert on golf or running sneakers or stockholder value or anything. I'm more making a point about how Nike moves and operates and how I think they should flex what their identity is, which is being the big dog. And the big dog shouldn't let these little dogs nip at their heels. They should be flexing and tossing them aside and they should be spending. And instead, they're doing the opposite. They're cutting on spending. They're cutting two billions. There's going to be job losses. They're cutting golf. I'm sure they're cutting lots of stuff. Instead, they should be hiring the best people instead of letting them walk. It's been hurting them in areas like golf and some aspects of running. And they're, you know, in golf, they're exiting, it seems. But it's creeping in on their tried and true as well, which is running and basketball. In basketball, they have one designer, Ben Nathancombe, designing basically four different sneakers that all look like one sneaker. Even with basketball, Adidas has a really good model with the Anthony Edwards one, as I've talked about before. And they're opening the door for other competitors like Brooks when it comes to running and Footjoy when it comes to golf. So overall, it just seems like Nike's a little bit vulnerable right now and they can turn it around. They have the product to turn it around they have this huge lead they also count on the fact that their competitors shoot themselves in the foot all the time and don't have the sheer number of products that they do so they always have that going for them as an aside i mentioned on twitter how there's all these like customs of dunks that appear from a few different people on instagram where they haven't hand painted a shoe they've just photoshopped a shoe and they're called concepts and there was a Toy Story one on Nice Kicks by this guy named Andu.C. Andrew Chu, I guess is his name. And he was someone who actually worked at Jordan Brand. And then I saw in his bio that he doesn't have that in his bio anymore. 
And then I, you know, I searched LinkedIn, being curious, and I saw that he works somewhere else now. I was always wondered about that guy because he'd always post these customs and most of the time they were just photoshops and a few times he did actually make those customs. Did this guy leave his job at Nike and at Jordan brand just so he could make these photoshops? Which I just thought is a crazy thing to do to leave like this high level job at Nike or Jordan brand just for, you know, Toy Story photoshops. But then when I thought about it, I'm like, if Nike did not like that he was doing this and told him to stop, he probably realized that, hey, I can probably just get a job somewhere else and a job somewhere else that will let me create my own customs and I can sell a few of those customs, the ones that I really make that take a long time. And I market this side business with these photoshops of Toy Story and Pokemon sneakers and all that other bullshit. And obviously he's a talented as a illustrator as a designer but you're not exactly going to be put in a position i assume to be making toy story and pokemon sneakers at nike at jordan brand so an update from my last episode where i talked about complex being for sale or sold off i said you know take the time to enjoy them while you can because i'm not sure how long you'll be able to enjoy them for and some news came out that basically buzzfeed has a dire debt problem And before I continue, you might be thinking, why are you still talking about them? And I get it. If you're tired of me talking about this, you could skip ahead to the next segment using the timestamps. And I honestly just talk about it now because I really, really enjoy it. (laughs) If there's one thing I try to do is extract as much joy out of any situation that I can. So that's what I'm doing here. So previously on the Sock Jig Sneaker Podcast, I talked about a lot of things about how there's this huge changes in digital media. There's these big cultural shifts in society as well, too. And that explains why you're seeing all these layoffs recently. And Pitchfork magazine has been announced that it's being merged into GQ. Sports Illustrated laid off a whole bunch of people and is presumably shutting down. And the companies that bankroll this stuff, they just realize there's just no money in this. There's no money in written word on a website at a $100 million investment level. Maybe there's money in video and entertainment. And, you know, if you're talent, there's always going to be that, you know, someone like Conan O'Brien sold his podcast network a few years ago for $150 million. And he's, you know, my favorite comedian and entertainer of this past generation. So you can build something for $100 million with Conan O'Brien. Can you build something for $100 million with Joe LaPuma? Does that make any sense? You know, the word is that Complex is trying to be sold off to the network app, potentially. But the article that came out said from New York Magazine that BuzzFeed has a dire debt problem. BuzzFeed is the parent company of Complex. And they had paid $300 million. That's what they paid for it. And if you read this article, they basically paid for it with IOUs. They basically said, hey bank loans will pay it back later and now their stock is worth nothing and the bankers who loaned them all this money want it back with interest and basically buzzfeed owes 200 million dollars by december and if they can't pay it they'll go bankrupt so they're broke broke so that really explains why they're not paying those youtubers that explains why they're canceling or delaying shows and that article said that you know they're hoping to get 100 million dollars for complex you know hopes and dreams, $100 million for Complex. What exactly are you buying for $100 million? Whoever's buying them needs to read this article because they are broke. They are on the verge of bankruptcy. 
you could offer them pennies on the dollars, you know, not 66% off. You could offer them basically nothing because what are you getting if you buy a complex in 2024? A website about sneakers and rap music? There's the sneaker shopping show, great. There's a handful of complex personalities. Why would you pay $100 million for Speedy Mormon when you could just hire him after, you know, the place goes under? There, I just saved you $100 million. As I said, BuzzFeed publishes articles on websites. They own things like Huffington Post and Complex, and and they publish articles on websites. Like, who is reading websites in 2024? Do you visit websites? I'm not talking social media. I'm not talking Reddit. I'm not talking even Substacks and newsletters and things like that. I'm talking about websites. Do you go to a website and say, hey, let me read what's on this website today? If you do, it's probably some big one like New York Times or whatever. Or maybe it's smaller or medium and something that you pay for. Would you pay for Complex? Would you pay for the content that you're getting from them? A monthly Patreon from them? I saw that they posted an article about some TikTok mom who bought some and ones that look like uh, panda ducks. And they wrote two articles about it and even interviewed her. And like, Someone is getting paid a New York City living salary to interview a TikTok mom about panda dunks. Again, BuzzFeed owes $200 million. And they're going to look around and say, what do we have that we can cut? And they're going to see articles about TikTok moms buying fake panda dunks and CrossFit shoes. And it's not going to make sense at all. They're going to be like, we paid for this? We are paying these people for this? It doesn't make any sense at all. And if you would pay a monthly Patreon for stories about TikTok moms wearing fake panda dunks, kudos to you. You know, I'm not trying to get people fired, only one or two, but what are we doing here? This is not going to be lasting a long time. That's why I said enjoy it while you can. And whoever the potential buyer is, whatever they're doing, live app, live shopping, maybe it's a write-off. I don't know. Like Kramer says, they just write it off. No one knows what it is, they just write it off. But Warner Brothers Discovery seems to be doing this with completed movies like Batgirl and not releasing them. They just write it off. It's interesting to see the future of criticism and cultural commentary. And it's not going to be from these $100 million orgs anymore. Just because that economic model is not there for them. It's going to be from content creators, whether you like it or not. From people like me, from YouTubers, from Twitch streamers. And it's up to the audience to figure out, you know, who's real and who's not and who's just trying to fake it and who's just trying to do it for likes and views. You know, someone like me, I'm just a fan who's doing it for the love of a game. I'm not doing this for a salary. And there's lots of others like me who are just doing it for the love of the game. Or there could be others where they're doing it for access and future opportunities because that is the only path forward in terms of an economic model, it seems, in this world. But like I said, what standard is there for sneaker journalism? Are we getting sneaker journalism when you're interviewing TikTok moms, when you're buttering up Marcus Jordan for 20 minutes and then asking him about the backdoor or having the clot guy on and then not asking him about the backdooring of the what the dunks? Is that the standard of sneaker journalism? Because, you know, I could do that. The bar is pretty low. It's not super high or anything. It's just sneaker entertainment, no different than any other YouTubers or content creators are doing. So all that to say, commentary and criticism is not obsolete in this age of streaming and digital media and all that stuff. I think I've done a great job in this. My track record speaks for itself. Things are just shifting. And as I was thinking about this, it's natural to mourn the things that we've lost. When you lose Sports Illustrated, 
or you lose a pitchfork website even it's natural to mourn that because we've lost something we've lost part of our history part of our own experiences of when we were at an age to enjoy that kind of stuff you know something that we held high and as things are shifting and changing it's hard to see where the gain is like what are we gaining from this shutting down because it's not clear what we're gaining there's no clear path of where things are going. It's like the end of Terminator 2, where it's just a road and you're just on that road. You know, like I said, if things are changing to content creators and so many of those are YouTubers and TikTok people are cringe, it's easy to say the future sucks. There's this quote I read on a tweet. It was about Pitchfork and music criticism itself. The tweet said something like, Twitter keeps throwing up this claim that on the back of magazine closures that music criticism and criticism in general is obsolete in the time of streaming because its primary function was to guide the consumer choice. But the real purpose of criticism is to deepen our response to culture. And that was a tweet from at Pierce Penniless. And I just thought that was a great way of putting it that people like me are on here and I talk about sneakers in a way and my goal is to do exactly that to deepen our response to culture so when it comes to all this and it comes to complex you know I don't know what their future is they'll probably be around in some format maybe nothing changes maybe they're QVC hosts on some live streaming app maybe they you know do a patreon or create a Substack, and they still work together as independents if they're on their own good luck we'll see how many people are rushing to support you then you got to put in that work to get people to support you then. And like I said, it's easy to mourn what we've lost. We've lost great things with Pitchfork and possibly Sports Illustrated. Once great things that maybe don't exactly fit the economic model of 2024. And you can have fond memories of those things. Those are fine to mourn because it's clear what we're losing. But if Complex goes down, you're not losing much. And a hater like me won't be mourning at all. I have some thoughts on content creation as well too and you know normally I don't have this goal of creating content about content. I've probably done this a little bit too much recently and a lot of this kind of stuff I don't think is really you know content creator problems are not real problems that any regular sneakerhead has but I'm only talking about it just as a way to make it clear where my lane is and the type of content you can expect from me if that makes sense so because this is a year in review kind of episode so that's why i'm going to talk about it now and then i'll shelve it for a bit and get back to mostly sneaker talk so a while back in the end of december there was this twitter space put on by sneaker fetish and others in the twitter community the airing of grievance spaces and there was some content creators in there and you know the some of the topics veered from the, the desire to get brand deals and seeding, but also calling out clout chasing and, you know, not going about it the right way. And it took some turns and there were some arguments and discussions and stuff like that, but that's Twitter spaces. That's just how it goes. But in terms of like content creator goals, I think everyone wants to create good content. That's just a given. But there's a desire to get recognition for it, of course, from the audience, from the people. And once you have enough of that, then you can get recognition from brands and seating and things like that and get to that next level. And you got to do this all while being authentic. You got to promote yourself in a way that feels authentic and true, that isn't cringe, and you're not, you know, dick riding an algorithm. So I, I couldn't listen to the whole Twitter space. I was driving to the gym and then a part of it, I heard, listened to it on the treadmill. But also I really didn't have any sneaker grievances. You know, if I have a grievance, I just have an outlet here on this podcast and I let the chopper sing. Call my gun John D the way at Rockefeller to quote Glorb. But 
when it comes to some of those content creator discussions and uh, issues they were have, you know, I just feel like I didn't have any of those problems. Some of the stuff that I talked about, like creating good content, I think I create good content. It's not a problem I feel like I have. It's always been the primary goal to create content that I wasn't seeing from others, as I've said before. And there's this viral Rick Rubin clip where he was basically saying the same thing. He was saying to people, don't make a content you think the audience wants. Make the content that you want, and then the audience will want it too. So basically what I'm saying is that I'm the Rick Rubin of sneakers because I've been doing this the whole time. And usually when I'm done with an episode, I feel like no one else could have done an episode like that. There's good takes, there's logic and reason, there's nothing that was sensationalized. Sometimes there's unhinged jokes. And I hope I take it in directions that you're not always thinking or that are super obvious. So I feel like I'm bringing a true version of myself and I get to be creative with it. The second thing that I mentioned was authenticity. Then that is just you being you. That is just who you are. There's no other way to put it. If you're cringe, you're going to come across as cringe. Are you likable? Then they're going to like you. People only want to consume your content if they like you. Hate watching will only go so far. The, the cringe stuff, I don't have to worry about it. I don't think about it. But as I said, when it comes to being authentic, you can't dick ride an algorithm. You can't be overly engagement farming. I, I tell jokes on Twitter and stuff. Is that a version of engagement farming? Not really, not in my mind. I'm not doing like generic left or right posts or shit like that. I'm usually crafting a joke. And of course I want gross and reach and things like that. And I feel like that is a better way of doing it than left or right type of posts. So when it comes to that, my record stands for itself. You can look through all my tweets and all my podcast episodes and all my takes and there's no cringe, there's no bad takes, it's all killer, no filler. The other thing I talked about was having recognition and having reach. You know, I'm lucky enough where I, this podcast connects with people and I'm lucky enough where I think the content is good and I'm authentic and bring the best version of myself forward and the people will repay it in kind. They'll interact with you, they'll like your tweets, they'll retweet your tweets, they'll listen to this podcast, they'll buy the socks, they'll post photos of themselves wearing the socks, you know. That is something that people are not going to do if they don't like you. So I'm really grateful for that. You know, it's unbelievable. It's not something I had thought about or even conceived when I first started a Twitter account. So thank you so much. But, you know, that second level of, of having connections with sneaker brands and things like that, you know, I'm lucky enough to know a few people at some places and some of them were in real life friends. So I would still be talking to them anyways. There's other people I've met along the way and people I consider friends. And, I, you know, I don't really ask them for scoops or anything. I talk to them like friends. And those people could go to work for Microsoft tomorrow and we'd still be talking about sneakers. So that's on the friend level. But in terms of brand deals and stuff, like that kind of stuff, I have no insight into or have uh, even been approached on things like that. And it's not something I'm worried about or sought out. You know, I... I've talked about this before. I just feel like I'm too old for this. You know, maybe if I was 22 with a podcast, I'd be trying to go for that and reach for that. But I'm way too beyond. I got a tech job. I have a good career. When I started out, me not showing my face or name and things like that was just a way to protect my career and, you know, the mortgage that I have to pay. So if you want to get to that next level, you've got to be showing your face. you got to be out there if you want to be in a commercial shoot or something. And that's not something that is in the cards for me at this point in my life at all. But I have been lucky enough to get seating from my friends at Adidas Hoops and Joe Fresh Goods, of course, and that came from them listening to the podcast. So it goes back to the first things that I said, that you create good work and you're authentic, and that's why they listen to the podcast. 
You know, Joe Freshgoods listened to the podcast and said he likes it and wanted to be on the show, and we made it happen. So after that, you can't tell me anything. So thank you very much to Joe Freshgoods, of course. But anyone else, anyone else working at brands or whatever, if they're listening, I hope so. I hope they hear my perspective as an outsider, and I hope I'm correct on most things. They, of course, would have access to much more knowledge that I would never have. I also hope they support me and buy some socks, so support your boy. I just have no desire to alter or change my content in order to get something like that because of everything I just said, because I'm just kind of too old for it. However, growth and reach is the other thing that everyone wants. Anyone who creates content wants to extend their reach and grow. And that should always be a goal. It's just not my primary goal. Because I think once you reach a certain level, it seems like the goal becomes either staying at that level and continue to get access or, you know, fish for future opportunities. And then the content you create is in support of those two things, continued access and future opportunities. And I think once you get to that certain level, the goal is to stay at that level and continue to get access and continue to fish for future opportunities. And it alters the way you do content. A good example of this recently is actually from pro wrestling, from WWE. There's a big scandal this week with Vince McMahon involving sexual assault and all kinds of horrible details and the company's implicated and it seemed like a whole bunch of people knew. At the same time, they had an event and they had invited people there to ask questions at the the press conference afterwards. This is after the Royal Rumble and the people that are going to show up are people like content creators, wrestling media outlets, which are usually small and independent. I think there's one person there from ESPN and the first question was not about any of this horrible stuff that happened, but it was about the Netflix deal. And then some more softball questions. And like, finally, there were some questions seriously about like who knew what and where, but at least half of the questions were just softballs. And why are these people asking softball questions when there's this huge story right in front of them? And it's like I said, it alters the way you do content because it's like, what if I'm seen as aggressive and then I'm never invited back to this place again? So I don't worry about that kind of stuff. And I've criticized Complex for creating content in this way. And, you know, they told me to go screw myself or whatever. But, you know, I don't have to prove it. They prove it all the time. But back to, like, independent content creators like myself. You know, I I get it. And I'm not trying to judge anyone who is trying to get access. As long as that, you know, is clear in how they're moving. I think this comes from this underlying desire for fame that content creators have. And... Like I said, maybe if I was 22, I would have that, but it's just absent for me. So it's because fame generates interest and how do you get fame and how do you get interest for your content when it doesn't involve fame? In terms of podcasts, I think that's a problem for a lot of people of generating enough interest or fame to get your content noticed because you feel like the content is good. And that's a hard problem. I don't have the answer to that other than get fame and You better do it in an authentic way, right? So if you want fame, you have this dream of blowing up and becoming a star. And there's this Supreme sneakerhead contest, and it totally took advantage of this and all the the content creators that applied for it. And those people at that contest told everyone they're in second place, which is a key part of the scam that, oh, you're so close that you're almost there. If you could just spread the word and maybe buy yourself some votes, perhaps you'll get there. And then at the end, some random person that they picked won, and it was just a big scam, it seemed likely to me. So that's all I wanted to say. That's all I wanted to kind of set the terms for the rest of the year and just remind myself and remind listeners about this. 
Uh, I'm sorry if I repeated this stuff before. I think actually the key part of any good podcast is being a little bit repetitive, but like I'm perfectly fine with my growth and reach being limited because of who I am and how old I am and where I am in my life. I think I'm totally fine and content with that. I think I create good content, like I said. I think enough people listen to me and follow me and want to hear future podcasts. I'm totally okay with not being huge and not dick writing algorithms and not trying to make this a business, you know. I always tell people there's no money in podcasts. If you want to make money, you want a business, go start a business. You can buy a lawnmower and start a grass cutting business and make way more money than you would in podcasts. So this podcast kind of stuff at this small content creator level, you just got to do it because you love it. So that's where I feel I am. I don't really care who thinks they're doing better than me. I don't know what metric people are measuring on on that kind of stuff. But cringe people saying they're doing better than me is hilarious. You know, I'm doing fine. And the goal of the podcast is to create the kind of sneaker content that I would like to see and keep it fresh and not let it get stale. The motto of the podcast is, is it all killer, no filler? <laughs> no, the motto of the podcast is thou shall not make or take part in the bad arts. And that's not what you're getting from me. You're not getting the bad art. So to continue the theme about content creation, I want to do a little bit about retrospective on the podcast, a kind of state of the podcast. I think last year I did this in the whole state of the sneaker game episode that I do, but this year I have it all kind of separated. I just kind of wanted to review what went well, what didn't go well, and some future goals, just so you as the audience has an idea as well. Usually you start with what went well, but let's start with the opposite side, not make a shit sandwich. Let's start with what didn't go well. So one thing I'm still trying to improve on is I'm still not good at live to tape where I record it live and it's fluid and I don't flub. And then usually what happens is I I flub a word and then I'll pause and I'll say it again. And then I kind of cut it out together. And sometimes it flows and sometimes there's like these jarring cuts and I just need to get a little bit better at that, get into the flow. You know, I just don't have that skill. So I'm trying to improve that skill. And some people just have it. I marvel at those that do it. Greg from the Sneak Disc podcast, he's done these solo episodes where he'll just start and he'll go right to the end, two hours straight. And I just don't know how he does it, but it's amazing. He can do it. I can't. But the main part of what didn't go well is that I only did 15 episodes. And this is just the format I've chosen It just doesn't lend itself to quick content. So I'm just going to flip it over. I really am going to make it a shit sandwich. I'm just going to say, hey, even though I only did 15 episodes, for most of those episodes, the main segment is something that I've been thinking about for a while and put a lot of thought behind. Usually, you know, for every episode, it starts with a note in a notes app. And then I just add things as I go. And then, it, you know, sometimes it's just random phrases or things that I have. And sometimes it's a whole segment. Eventually, I put it in an outline in a Google Doc, and then I go to record, and then just reading from the outline, and sometimes I go with the outline, and sometimes I veer off script. But overall, the notes app process, that's something I just let kind of simmer and bake. I add some things in there, and then I think about it, you know, as I'm going about a walk or as I'm driving, things like that, and I refine the message over time. And so that's why it never comes across as a, as a riff or banter or quip or anything like that. So all I'm saying is that kind of content just can't be done in banter and quips and conversation. And, you know, I'm not opposed to that. I'm just saying that one format is quicker than the other. And this is what I can do from 10 p.m. and on. And that's when I work on this podcast. You know, 
I have a career and a family that takes up most of my time. It's the most important thing to me. I'd rather stay at home and build a life. So I can't always be doing the weekly content grind that others can do. I just run out of steam. So even if all this did pay or anything like that, I'd be prioritizing content before my family. And that doesn't sound right. It just sounds insane even saying it out loud. So one of the goals this year will be try to mix in shorter, quick reaction type episodes. I don't like talking about every topic because often the topic has already been adequately covered on Twitter. And if I don't have anything extra to add on it, so what's the point? I don't need to have this full recap of everything that's going on in the sneaker world. Because I haven't done these 20, 30 minute types of episodes, I think it would actually be a nice change of pace. And in terms of what went well, overall, I thought it was a good year for the podcast. A lot of my takes, I think, will age really well. I think that future sneaker retail one will. Some of the stuff I said in the stolen sneakers and early sneakers, I think, will also age really well. Now, overall, I feel like I've cataloged the changes in sneaker culture pretty well over the years and uh, how things have changed, how we cop has changed, the the tech behind it, what brands and retailers are doing. I've covered all that pretty well, I think, and especially how I feel like we're in between sneaker eras. I feel like I was one of the first to kind of talk about that, as well as talking about how things just change as you get older, especially with how millennials are changing to Gen Z and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that I talk about is the limits of nostalgia. You know, I don't care about reminiscing or remember when. I don't do a lot of that kind of content. I don't want to be in a state of always, you know, remember back then. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I think as you grow, it's natural to go, hey, remember back then? It's just not for me. And I've always taken more of a let's see where we're going and adapt approach. And as I talked about earlier, you know, it's remember when is kind of rooted in that The whole thing about how it's easy to see what we've lost when it's not always clear to see what we've regained. And so that's what kind of the thing with this podcast is. I I try to explore what we're gaining as things are changing. So, you know, I've always wanted to showcase that once you get older, you don't have to be in this perpetual state reminiscing. And I think I did that pretty good. So in terms of future episode goals, I think I want to do, there's a few more deep dives I want to do on certain topics. That's where I pretend I'm a business podcast. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Some topics from a few years ago that I want to revisit and talk to the people involved with. I have a few ideas on that as well, too. And a few more ideas that I have. I've got usually like a five or six episodes in my mind as I go. Interviews this last year, I talked to Jean-Michel Lemieux, J.M. Wind, the former CTO of Shopify. It was awesome talking to him about his insights behind bot protection. I talked to my friends, Jerlisa Nicole and Lois Sikani as well too. I had a lot of good insights in those interviews. And of course the big one was Joe Fresh Goods. And for that, just like imagine creating a sneaker account with a gimmick name years ago with this goal of starting a blog. And then eventually you abandon the blog and just stick to Twitter posts and you do that for a long time. And then, you know, one day you're like, hey, I'm gonna start a podcast with my gimmick name. And you have a dream guest for your podcast with a gimmick name. And then one day, the dream guest said, hey, I like what you say. Have me on your show and we get it done. You know, after that, you can't tell me nothing. No one can sell me anything after that. So once again, thank you to Joe Fresh Goods. And of course, thank you to all the people who took the time to speak to me. I think, of course, one of the goals is more interviews. Those are actually, as I've said before, easier to mix in and the part about scheduling when I'm on the West Coast and most people are on the East Coast, it's, it's a pain and not something that I like doing, but easy enough a thing to try to improve on. And I haven't done a ton of outreach. I've usually just talked to people that I already know. So 
Imagine what's possible if I actually do some outreach and get some guests on here. In terms of segments this year, we had Bridget GPT, size 13 takes. I think I got to bring back Sneaker Guy of the Week. I haven't done that in a while. I'll probably bring back size 13 takes. I'll, I'll look at some of the old ones I haven't done in a while and bring them back. And I'll come up with some new ones as well, too. One thing I was going to do this year is that more of a mailbag feature as well, too, where people can ask me questions and I can answer them. This is something I've avoided on purpose. I always wanted to challenge myself that I could come up with enough topics to be an episode, you know, every three, four weeks that I've done. So, and I've usually done that, but I'm curious to see what people will ask. So I think it's all right to do once in a while. Same with the whole audience participation thing. Please participate in the bold predictions. Send me your bold prediction thing. So that's something I've done before, but I think I'll, I'll try to expand it a bit more this year. In terms of podcast stats, these are often not talked about. I, I don't really know what other sneaker podcasts get unless, you know, I've personally talked to them. I saw that in podcast industry stats, there's this podcast platform called Buzzsprout that posts the stats for their own platform. And most likely the stats that they post are kind of uniform across other platforms, meaning that on their platform, the top 5% of podcasts have around a thousand downloads in the first seven days. So I can definitely say that I'm over that. So I'm literally top 5% podcasts in the world. Like I said, can't tell me nothing. The top 1% get more than 5,000 listens or downloads in the first seven days. So definitely not in that range. Those are the podcasts that get all the big ad money and the big popular ones and stuff. So I'm definitely not in that range. So maybe the goal is to get to that next level, somewhere in between the 1% and the 5%. I'm honestly not sure how that's possible in this in-between sneaker era, especially that we're in. So I'm not going to worry about it and just keep creating content that I want to create. Spotify posts some stats at the end of the year as well, too. I was top 10 for 862 people, top 5 for 598 people, and the top podcast for 183 people. So that is just a crazy number to me. I don't do a lot of episodes, so I don't really expect to be in the top 10 for a lot of people who listen to podcasts. So, you know, there's podcasts that post two or three times a week, sports and politics and stuff like that. So I don't know how they calculate it, but the fact that I'm number one for 183 people is crazy. So thank you, of course, for listening and making me number one. Some other stats that I saw, the median playtime is usually the entire episode. That means 50% of the people who started listening listen to the entire episode. And often it's way over 50%. The retention rate is 75 to 80%. That means people don't just shut it off halfway through. And some podcasts do better than others, and that's all right. You know, I've skipped segments or entire episode of all my favorite podcasts. So I say take what you need and leave the rest because everything isn't going to be for everybody. When making the outline for this podcast, I originally had an idea to go over the 64 sneaker bracket tournament that I did on Twitter. Some of the upsets and stuff, but it's already running long, so I'm going to skip all that. But I have some general thoughts on year-end lists, and when I make the list, I rank them myself, and I do an order, and pick based on design, wearability, the impact that it had, the release method even... And just general vibes. And this is not a science or anything. It's more of an art form. And it's all going to be arbitrary and capricious. And I'm just really trying to rep the year that we had. I'm trying to cover all sneakerhead audiences, not just like the size 13 people that are on Twitter. This includes the fashion people and women. And we saw this with Wales Bonner and the Martine Rose Shocks and... Even fashion guys with CPFM Flea 2 and things like that, that kind of apply to both. And there are some outliers like the the red boots, which were 
fun, but in a bubblegum way where you're kind of the flavor ran out really quickly and then you just spit it out. But one of the things that I saw when I published the whole bracket thing was that people were saying that it was a boring year in sneakers. And that, of course, is subjective. It's your own approach to sneakers. How involved are you? And really, I feel like there was a lot of solid shoes, but there was not enough like super fire shoes. And this is the stuff like the off-whites and Travis One lows and things like that we used to get. And at this point, you know, a new Travis One low coming out isn't exactly new, so it doesn't hit like how when they first hit. So a lot of good shoes for some people are like, I'm not interested in that. I'm only interested in the fire shoes. So if you're not looking for a fire New Balance or a fire Asics and you're only looking for Nike and Jordans, you're going to say it was a bad year. But when there's a year where there's a whole bunch of off-whites or a bunch of stuff that flips, then you could say that it was a great year. A good example is the the Dime Asics 2160 that I mentioned. That's a shoe that is really nice, I think. Hits the sneakerhead market, the the trendy fashion types. But it's not exactly going to move the needle and it's not exactly going to restore the feeling. So it's not a shoe that's trying to do that. It's just trying to represent Asics and Dime, really. And so when I made the list and I ranked all the sneakers and stuff, I was thinking about, you know, if a shoe doesn't make the list, it doesn't mean it's bad. You don't need to make these year-end lists. There's lots of GRs that are good, but when I make this list, it doesn't really supposed to be about GRs. One of the things that I do is I've been listening to a lot of the Best of Rock by Year playlists on Spotify. And I think I started with 1970 and I'm up to 1995 or so right now. And so when I'm listening to that 1990 Best of Rock playlist, 1990 wasn't a great year. There was only like 50 or 60 songs on that playlist. But then when you go to 1991, the rock playlist is huge. It's like 80 songs. There's Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Metallica, things that people listen to a lot in 1991. But there's lots of stuff that, for example, I wasn't listening to in 1991, like the Pixies or Teenage Fan Club. I didn't really get into those later. So... There's good stuff around, but you might not have been aware of it in that year. Maybe you'll get to it later. Maybe it hits later. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you never listened to Teenage Fan Club. So 2023 was definitely not like 1991, where there was just a ton of hits and, you know, new Nirvana, new Metallica, new Pearl Jam. The closest year we had to that was probably 2017, when the Off-Whites and Cause and a whole bunch of other stuff released. So this year was a mix of everything. So not everyone's going to be into everything. So that was my quick summary of year-end lists and my 64 sneaker bracket tournament. Next up, really, I wanted to recap my personal year in sneakers, my favorite pickups, the stuff I missed out on, what I sold, things like that. In terms of pickups, I did get a lot of help. I got help on Jordan 4 SB, on Born and Raised Dunks, Travis Scott is my friend. He helped me out as well. I have some friends and some, like I mentioned, are in real life friends and some are friends I've gained along the way. And so I have had help on this kind of stuff and I'm eternally grateful to them, to anyone who's ever helped me out on copying pairs. And because I have this help, I, you know, this is why another reason why I don't always complain about kind of stuff. So I, I always find it weird when people are complaining about missing on the sneakers when they you know, do stuff with brands and things like that. Like, like if you have access, you should be a little bit grateful. And I am grateful. In terms of my favorite stories with sneakers, of course, one of my favorite stories is the Keisha Blues, New Balance, Joe Fresh Goods. 
uh, getting that pair was unbelievable. I'm super grateful. I still wear them all the time. They, the laces glow when I get back into the house. Uh, a fun pair to have. Another personal story that I have a really good connection with are the Kith 1500, the red pair. I traveled to Toronto for my buddy's opening of the store, so I have a personal connection to those sneakers. Also finally got the Air Jordan White Cement 3 with the Nike Air on the back, but I, I still have not gotten the OG one that I want. I don't want it sale on this midsole. I don't want a red stripe at the bottom. I want the old school white cement 388 and because of this one that released this past year i'll probably have to wait five or six more years before i ever get that one some of my favorite releases this year i think the kith a6 x-men was a really awesome release that was a, a super fun release i you know i turned 180 on that release as i mentioned before i didn't like it at first but then i saw the quality i saw how many things were involved with it and that's one of those things as i've talked about that only Ronnie can do. So if, if you are the only person who can do this kind of stuff, you should flex and do that kind of stuff. So I really like that. I really like the HAL ASICs Forest Green and the, the white Yeti ones as well too. I really like that those were essentially pre-orders and, and they were easy to get. I was able to get the white pair, even though they dropped at like 3 a.m. my time, because I had pre-ordered the previous Forest Green one, I got early access and was able to order them. And then it was nice to see that both were available generally afterwards too and relatively easy to get. In terms of online drops, like this is one of those things where it's really gone down in the last year or so. There there used to be these big Shopify anti-bot change domain type of drops every few months and now it's like quarterly it feels like. The biggest one probably this year was Supreme being on Shopify. So the Dunk SB, the Remel Z one being on there and you know, being a big manual success, a lot of people hit on that one. So that was probably one of the better drops of the year. I was also lucky enough to get the Action Bronson Baklava New Balance 990 V6, the first one. I was glad to be able to get those. I never got the, the second pair that came out. And honestly, those Baklava are my favorite shoes of the year. Those in the Jordan 4 SP, those are the Baklava. If I were to rank it number one, that was my number one sneaker of the year. I had a couple of first-time cops. I copped Salomon XT6 and I copped Hoka hiking boot. And the Hoka one, I've been wearing it in the rain and snow here in Vancouver when it snowed. And the Salomon one as well too. And both are pretty good, you know, all condition kind of Vancouver weather sneakers. I also bought Rick Owens vintage sneaks as well too. And those are painful on the feet, but look awesome. So I probably got to change out the, the insole or something. Some purchases I regretted. I regret buying the red boot. I think I sold it off for $30, $40 loss, but I didn't even open the package. I just sent it away to GOAT. The Jaw 1, I I've already talked about that one enough. The Ama Manier 12, I don't really wear that one. I don't know why I bought it. And I really skipped the Ama Manier 5s because of it, because I'm like, I'm never going to get to this, so just leave it. The New Balance Concept C-Note 998, I kind of regret buying that just because it was so expensive, like 260 shipped, I think. I regret it because you're looking at the price now and it's probably under retail in the app, so I could have got it cheaper. But it is really nice in hand and I haven't opened the box or looked at it since, so one of the ones where I'll probably look at it next year or something. Another one I regretted is the Washington Wizards Air Jordan 3. It's nice and all, but like, 
if I was going to wear a three, I would just lean to the black cement or the white cement three. So I don't know why I do this to myself. I don't know why I always pick up these ones that look pretty good. I'll probably eventually sell it and just go back to wearing the white cement threes or the black cement threes. The CPFM Flea 2, I sold those off as well too. And I regret it because the prices have been going up. But as I, you know, the whole size issue, I got a half size down and they were too tight. So I was like, got to get them out of here. I'm not going to wear them. And of course, the number one regret was the Travis Air Force One Utopia. It was just like some regular ass Air Force One with a little sticker on the side that said Utopia. And it's like, that's it. Number one regret, of course. In terms of sneakers, I paid resale for it. Not a lot, really. I paid resale for the Dime A62160. I missed out on those in the first time around. And then later there was a restock and then I doubled up. So now I got two of them. The Jaw 1, I, yeah, like I said, I was much complaining if I'd done about that shoe. I did pay resale for it. I also paid resale for the Palace Puig Samba. I paid like 170, 180 for it. I think it was like 140, 150 on the Palace site. That's a nice shoe and all, but I just haven't gotten around to wearing it. And another one that I paid resale on earlier in the year, last February or so, was the Joe Fresh Goods 990 V3 Outside Clothes. That's the, the brown and blue one. And I, I just saw on GOAT that it had come down from the 360, 350 range down to like 260 or so at the time. And so then I just bought it. In terms of most worn, my number one sneaker of the year, the one I wore a ton this year was the Action Bronson Baklava New Balance 990 V6. And that's an example of where I would not have tried a 990 V6 if I didn't get this. And where collabs and stuff can give you insight into regular sneakers. I've since bought the Kith one as well too. I'm not a huge fan of the gray one, but I missed out on the Carhartt one. I'm looking out for any nice colorways of that model because I was able to pick up this one. I also wore the Asics Gel Keanu 14 Ice Studios a lot this year. I think my Angelo Bach ones, I wore a ton of the, the previous year have kind of flattened out. So I just moved on to the Ice Studios one. The OG HAL ASICS 1130, I've been wearing those a lot as well too. Of course, the Joe Fresh Goods New Balance pairs, the 610s, the outside clothes ones that I picked up from GOAT, and the Keisha Blue, I've been wearing those a lot this last year. And, you know, I would often wear different shoes every day. I don't always recap every single shoe. When I'm recording, I usually just recap the one I wore in the last week. But when I was making this list, the one thing I realized is I probably didn't wear enough of the, the sneakers that had just come out. And that's because I usually just decide to ice the sneakers and wear them later. And maybe I got to revise that. And maybe I should just be wearing them immediately because making this list, I was like, those are only a little handful of five or six that I wore a ton of. But I, I did mix in a shoe every once in a while, some random old Air Max and stuff, and then put it back away. Any other heat sneaker that I have, like the CPFM or Travis Lowe's, some stuff I gave a break, like Tom Sachs, and I haven't worn Yeezys in a long time. I think the only ones I really have left are Wave Runners. Uh, shit like that. But I, I probably should mix in some more of the recent sneakers. In terms of sneakers that I missed out on that I really wanted, the top of the list is the Reverse Grinch Kobe 6. I love Kobe 6s. I missed out on that one, and I'm never going to go back to get it. I also missed out on the other Action Bronson Lapis Lazuli or whatever it was called. Again, price is too high on my size, and I already have the other one, so I don't need it. The Cortese Air Max 95, that was a nice sneaker. Too hard to get at this point. I have a friend, Doug, who's tried to buy it four or five times, and every time it turns out fake, so... Easy enough to skip. 
the UNC Jordan 2 Low I wanted as well too, and I might still pick up because it's under retail. The Coldwell Air Max Plus Blue, I wanted those ones. But then I got the Keisha Blue, fell into my lap, so it kind of universe works itself out. The Air Jordan 1 Spider-Verse is probably the best implementation of a cartoon or movie sneaker I've ever seen. I think those are really awesome and I think they will age really well. I missed out on those and it's been kind of fine. I've been skipping out on a lot of Jordan 1 highs. I missed the Terror Squad Air Force 1, the the Panda version Air Force 1. It just was not available in size 12. They, they flew in that size and, you know, I don't want it enough to go buy it for $200 on GOAT. The J Balvin 3, I, like I said, I already Mr. Brightsided myself on this one. I can always just go to White Cement 3s or Black Cement 3s, so I'm not too worried about that. The Ambush Uptempo uh, Lilac one I thought was really nice, and I talked some shit about Ambush on this podcast before, like what is the crap that she's making, Nike needs to get rid of her, and then she comes out with a really nice version of the Uptempo, so I gotta eat my words on it, but didn't cop it, it flew in size 12 as well too. I really wanted the Dusty Olive Dunk, I missed out the first time it came out two years ago, and I guess it did restock, but dunks are one of those things where there's just so many coming out, I don't chase any of them. And some sneakers I just gave up on. This is kind of almost the opposite of regrets. I gave up on all the Air Jordan 1 85 highs. They're just too hard to get for me. So I don't even worry about it or think about it. I didn't even realize that the black and white Air Jordan 1 85 released this year. I forgot to add it to my sneaker bracket list. And Kobe's are another one. I know they're changing the strategy on Kobe's going forward, but I'm pretty sure they must have talked to Vanessa Bryant and kind of given her the deal of how this is going to work and... My guess is there'll be some GR versions that are still limited, that will still fly, and then the rest of them will be back to the super limited thing. Some sneakers I sold this year, this is one thing I'm often reluctant to talk about because I don't want to, I guess, necessarily dox myself. And my rule is I usually don't sell good shoes. I like keeping the good shoes, but I did sell off some good shoes this year. I sold off the CPFM Flea 2, as I mentioned. I sold off a lot of my Yeezys that I was never going to wear anyways. Uh, there's still some Tom Sachs general purpose shoes that I have. I haven't sold those. I think I did sell the yellow one maybe. I'm not sure. A lot of the Vomero 5s that I picked up this year, I just picked up and never wore. So I flipped. Also, I started getting rid of some of the cops that I bought during the COVID year, like Bordeaux 6s or Pine Green 3s and Raging Bull 5s. Just, you know, had a talk with myself that I'm never going to wear these, so just sell them off. Even if they are going for way less and I ended up losing $20, $30 or whatever on it, I just got rid of a bunch of those. So some of the better sneakers I sold off, I sold off the Travis Scott Sale Air Force One. I sold off Concord 11s because Gratitude ones are coming out. I sold off Travis Scott 270. That one is not, you know, I don't feel guilty about selling that one. The Air Max One Susan, that's a shoe that... You know, if I dressed like Kermit the Frog in a suit, maybe I'd wear those. So uh, it's not a sneaker I'll probably ever see again. I sold off the CDG Sundermax for a really big price. I sold off the Air Jordan 4 Black Cat for like a thousand bucks. I sold off the Nike Fear of God 1 for somewhere in that range as well too. And my probably my biggest sale was the Cold Wall of Amero 5 Solarized. I think I said on Twitter, I probably have the the highest sale price for a Vomero 5 at, I don't know, it was over a thousand bucks as well too. I also wanted to talk about my top 20 worst of the year in the world of sneakers list that I do every year. I've been doing it four years now and it's always like a fun thread I've been doing on Twitter and 
the you know the title of it is that I'm recapping everything wrong, dubious, or just plain dumb in 2023. And uh, you know, I, I don't intend it to be like these are the worst sneakers of the year. I just try to list everything dumb that I've come across throughout the year. And it's inspired by Esquire magazine. They used to do an annual issue called Dubious Achievements of the Year Award, usually involving celebrities and entertainment and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, it's fun to do. And the approach I've always taken is that, you know, I'm in this unique position where I can say this kind of stuff. And uh, I'm not worried about the the kind of stuff I've been talking about, the, the future access and continued access kind of stuff. But at the same time, also not trying to hurt people's feelings, not trying to be mean or overly mean. I always say for the list that it's just meant to be a fun recap. And like I said, I don't have anything against people. And I always tell people, please don't be mad at me online. But most of the time, I'm just trying to make a joke. Like I'm trying to craft a list. And if I have a joke to go with it, that's what I do. But some stuff is hard to joke about. Like a lot of the Kanye stuff, like him drawing a swastika on the shoe. Yeah, it's kind of bad and jarring and, you know, it happened years ago. It, it only was unveiled this year in that New York Times article. Or a better example is Kanye telling Wexler to kiss a photo of Hitler. Like, that's bad. I, I feel bad for Wex. I don't, I don't want to make fun of that or make a joke about that. So it's easier to make a joke about, you know, Adidas pretending to hem and haw about what they're going to do, about warehouses full of Yeezys, and pretending that they're going to burn them when... We knew exactly what they were going to do. They are going to sell them. Or Tom Sachs, for example. It's easy to make fun of Tom Sachs. And this always happens every year. Someone who doesn't follow me sees the list and got mad at me for, how could you add Tom Sachs but not add Kanye going on Alex Jones? And I just said, it's an online list, bro. Like, it's, you know, it's just a list. And afterwards, I looked it up that Kanye was on Alex Jones in 2022. So this is what happens with this kind of stuff. People who don't follow you get mad. Some other stuff that I didn't add just because it's a little sad. Retail stores closing. You know, it's hard to kick dirt on stores that are closing. Banned LA owner, for example, who owes people money and then went to rehab. I didn't want to make a joke about someone going to rehab. Or even Nike dropping Kyrie. That was just a sad story, too. Yeah, I probably could have put a flat earth joke in there somewhere, but uh, I skipped it. I just left it off. Some other stuff that I I genuinely did forget to add. And like I said, I can't recap everything. So so this is the stuff that people had mentioned to me afterwards. There was a sneakers day in Europe and they had like the full on promotions and events in stores. Whereas on US, they just had a restock of a couple dunks. I wanted to add, you know, making fun of all these photoshops of cartoon dunks of Toy Story dunks and all that kind of stuff. But I already, I talked about it in this episode, but I, I could have added that to the list and uh, there's lots of jokes to be made there. Another one about how all these Nike basketball sneakers all look the same. The three or four of them all look the same. That could have been on the list. Or Marcus Jordan blaming a rogue employee for the fact that that's how all the shoes are backdoored. We're all trying to find the guy who did this. Someone told me I should have added Drift House and I, you know, I'm only kind of aware of what they do. There's some sort of monthly club and they're sort of related to Skate or SB. And uh, whenever you do a monthly club and people have expectations, it usually turns out bad in sneakers. So don't do it. Some other ones that missed a cut, I could have made fun of Goat Black Friday, but it seems like a lot of people did genuinely win this year. So I kept it off. Stadium Goods consignment decline. Again, this is only a thing that's an issue to resellers, so I left it off. I had on here sneaker content creators that don't know what to do now, that sneakers are kind of declining. This is a little too general. I wanted to make fun of all these guys that have these big followings, and then all of a sudden they're having this kind of midlife crisis about it because 
they don't know what to do and they weren't i guess maybe into sneakers as much as they thought maybe they're just into it more about the fame another one i could have added was how there's people who say sneakers are dead because they're too available again it's better when it's a specific person than a generic statement like that another generic statement i, I talked about is reminiscing <laughs> reminiscing about the good old days i left this off because people love reminiscing so i it's hard to make fun of the jaw one that's a shoe I did not like in hand, but I've already talked about it enough, so I left that off. The Artifact Auto Lacing Shoe, I think I added it last year, so that's why I left that one off. That Footscape Cow Print Shoe, I was gonna, even though I said I'm not gonna add bad shoes, sometimes I add one or two in there, uh, just because I have a joke. I was gonna recycle my joke about how it looks like a giraffe's pussy, but I don't, you know, I thought maybe it's not gonna go over well in a list. It probably does, because sometimes these unhinged jokes do go well, but. So that's it. I'm not going to include the list here. I'm not going to go through every single one. I'll, I'll link to it in, in the notes if you want to go read it, if you haven't. Uh, it's always a fun list to do every year. And thank you for liking and retweeting it. In terms of how I make the list, I usually just keep a notes app note at the beginning of the year. And as I remember things or as I see things, I will add it to the list. I don't always remember to do that. And oftentimes this list is abandoned. And so then later in the year, when, when it becomes like uh, October, November, I kind of refresh it. I also, of course, use my bookmarks feature on Twitter. I go look through all of my bookmarks in there, but often I'm bookmarking a lot of things. Sometimes I'm bookmarking memes and funny jokes or Sydney Sweeney photos, you know, an average guy's list of bookmarks. I go through my podcast outlines that kind of triggers memory. Oh yeah, I could add this. I review my Twitter, which is kind of a pain to do because... There's no easy way to check a tweet from months ago. So I get it to a certain state and then I let it sit a few weeks. And then as I see things and remember, I'm more aware of it. And then I go back and add it. And then, then I use a site called Trello where you can make a board and lists and create cards on each list. And then it's easy to rearrange them. So I create a card for each one and then I add photos for each tweet. And that usually takes up a lot of time. So tweets do better when there's a photo on it. So that's all the work that it takes. I figured I would cover this once and never again, the behind the scenes of it. So I hope that covers it and we'll do it again next year. So that's the episode. Thanks for sticking with it for this long. If you listen to the whole thing, I promise to shelve comments about content creation for a little bit. The album recommendation this week is Sprint's Letter to Self. Check out that album. And most of all, please go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs>